0: Titus 3, beginning in verse 8. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid Foolish controversies, genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. We all who, all oh, pardon me, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. <coughs> Lord, as we finish up this wonderful book of Titus that has given us so many um, good things to think about and to meditate on, to apply to our lives, and to dig deeper into so that we might grow in our faith and grow in our knowledge and understanding of you, we ask that you would continue that work even here tonight as we finish up with um, some difficult topics. We know that the purity of your church is something that is essential and vital to you, And so we ask, Lord, that you would not only fill us with your spirit for sanctification, but help us to be mindful of areas whereby we might be better agents of sanctification in the church as a whole. Lord, please do all of these things in your precious name and for your glory in our midst, Lord. In your name, amen. Well, the end of the book, especially with some of these, um, what do you call, greetings here at the end. It might be easy just to just zip on through and get to the end. Because you know what? We've gone through a lot of meaty stuff in the context of this book. But let me remind you a little bit of the setting of the entire epistle. And it will help, I hope, to put a bow on the end of this epistle. Titus was commissioned by Paul the Apostle, sent out by Paul the Apostle. In fact, was with Paul for a period of time on the island of Crete. And apparently Paul, after establishing churches all around the entire island, then left the island, left Titus in charge, to go back around to the established churches that have been there for some time to continue to preach, to teach, to strengthen the churches, and then ultimately to, after having strengthened the churches, ordain elders and deacons to lead those churches. So it's a timely process. It needs to be done. But it needs to be done rightly. And so this epistle was written by Paul to Titus so that he might have not only in his head, I'm sure Titus was thoroughly competent to be able to do this work on his own. However, it certainly helps if you're going to do this to have a manuscript in hand from Paul himself to say, yeah, this is the way we're going to do things. Let's leave a copy here for you. Move on to the next town. Yeah, this is the way we're going to do things. Let's leave a copy here for you. Following me? And then around the whole island they went. And so everyone had a copy of these words. And it was a consistent church that was built there in the island of Crete. Now, there was a lot of problems because these people were kind of rascals, right? I mean, he says that they were... Lazy, filthy gluttons who only think of themselves and are driven by their own passions and desires, right? That, that, that sounds like some modern cities today. And so Paul, with that in mind, and Titus knowing the culture he was going into, they both wanted to see these churches matured. And the way to do that is to have a structure in place so that the Bible could be taught, the Bible could be understood, and there the people could grow, right? Because we know faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, but that isn't just for salvation. It is for that, but it's for more than that as well, right? We continue to grow as we hear the word of God read and taught and expounded to us. Chapter 3 here, He remember, he goes after or giving instruction on how to ordain and who to ordain in terms of elders in the church, talks about what kind of sound doctrine needs to be given. And then he gives these this breakdown of all of the people who were there in the church. Remember, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, slaves, um, masters, and then pastor the leaders within the church themselves And we went through all of that there in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3, we get this glorious picture that we looked at just last week about the great truths of our salvation. How that we were speaking evil. We were foolish, disobedient, led astray by various passions, having our days in malice and hatred and envying and hating one another, right? Sounds like a summary of Ephesians 2 if I've ever heard of one. All by nature children of wrath, following the prince and the power of the air according to the sons who are work of disobedience. All going our own way, all doing our own thing. And then that glorious two words that are right there in chapter 2 of Ephesians, but God. And God is the one who intervenes in our lives. He's the one who takes those rebellious sinners and says, no longer will you be rebellious, pulls out their heart of stone, gives them that heart of flesh. As it were, he is at war with individuals. He's at war with them for them. And so he invades sovereignly into the lives of individuals, and he's the one who regenerates them. He's the one who saves them. Look at verse 5, pardon me, 4 in the chapter. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through whom Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It is all of God. We did not have anything to do with it. We We're hating and hated and villainous and all kinds of manner of evil. Looking for ways to continue in our sin. Romans 1 says we even invent ways to sin. And being inventors of evil. But God, who in his loving kindness, he's the one who saved us. He's the one who called us. He's the one who regenerates us. He's the one who does all of the work within us, basically taking us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, saving us, bringing us into his kingdom. The biblical languages adopted us into his family so that we might be children of God. It's all of his work. He's the one who did all of the work. And with that framework in mind, he concludes the epistle, okay? So that's where we pick up verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, the saying is trustworthy is the saying we just looked at. The saying is this. God, in his kindness, appeared And saved us, not because of our own works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. He saved us. He regenerated us through the renewal of the Spirit. He poured out all this on us richly, so that we who are justified are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the trustworthy saying. So, (laughs) if you want to go away from here tonight, with one little thing that you can put a pin in and go, oh, that was good. It's verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. Which is why it's important that I went back and looked at that. Because that's a saying that's trustworthy. Paul wants Titus to insist on these things. The reason is, is because, let's be honest, in most parts of the world and other religions that are out there, including the island of Crete, including the city of Chico, people want to do good on their own. They want to see themselves more highly than they ought to. If we were to go out and go street witnessing out here during Christmas preview, and we just started talking to people, I guarantee you one of the common threads, the common themes we would hear from people is, I'm a good person. I'm no Hitler. I'm no Mao Zedong. I'm no, what's the guy in China, Xi Jinping? I know whatever it is. You see, what we have the tendency to do as people is establish a level of righteousness far lower than God's standard. We will not just dial it down a notch. We're going to dial it down like 99 notches, And then the one guy who's just, or two guys, or three, they're just a little bit worse than we are in the entirety of the scheme of sins of Scripture. We're going to compare ourselves to them. And the Bible's pretty clear in 2 Corinthians that those who compare themselves amongst themselves and by themselves, they're not wise. But we're fools apart from Christ. The Bible says that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So it's no wonder to us that when we're speaking to people that have not been born again yet, we're going to get foolish answers. We're going to get foolish responses. That's not a a judgmental condemnation. That comes from the Lord. (laughs) But it is indeed my desire and my responsibility to point those things out right, to people. So Paul wants Titus to insist on these things to continue to come back to them. We need to hear them over and over and over and over again because we ourselves are inclined to then once we are saved, fall back on our works right That was Paul or pardon me Peter's problem there in Galatia as he went back and started hanging out with the Jews and Paul had to come up and confront him, which is thematic according to what we're about to look at, confront him face to face and say, why are you acting this way? Why are you who are Jews trying to set this higher standard for these people? You shouldn't do that. So this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. One of the condemnations that people will levy against us when we say God is the one who does all of the saving. That it isn't God did his 99% and now it's you up to you to do your 1% to get you saved. Or the devil had his vote and God had his vote and now you have to cast a deciding vote. Right? You've heard those silly kind of ways of explaining the gospel. Well, those are not helpful because, <clears throat> pardon me, let me back up. Those, are, well, those aren't helpful because they're not biblical. But where I was going with that is that the argument that's against us, well, then what are you gonna do about good works? If you didn't have to do anything, well, then you can just say, hey, it's by grace, I don't have to do any good works. And Paul, of course, responds to that quite clearly in Romans chapter six, when he says, so should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? <laughs> no, of course not, absolutely not. Paul's point is that if we tell people, we insist on these things, this trustworthy saying, then people will be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see, good works that come and flow out of an attitude or a position of thanksgiving, can I use that word this week? Yeah? A position of thanksgiving are the purest of motivations, because I'm not doing anything to try to get something from God, right? I'm not doing anything to try to, you know, get, get some better, you know, oh, Lord, I need, I, I, I need some new tires for my car. So I'm going to do some good works. And you know people do that kind of thing. And maybe not tires, but you know, it's a silly illustration, but you get it. And you've probably done it because I've done those stupid kind of things too in my walk with the Lord. But we want to be careful to continue to go back to the grace of God because that is the amazing grace that's going to motivate me to do good works. Well, these things are excellent and profitable for people. Meditating on the grace of God, being careful and devoting ourselves to good works are excellent and profitable for people within the church. Now we get to a little section here that can be, frankly, quite dicey. We're going to look at church discipline here. This is a particular area that if you have been in churches throughout our good nation and throughout our state here, that you will have found practiced very little. I've been in quite a few churches now as a Christian and have not seen this practiced very many times, unfortunately. But church discipline is something that is vitally important to the health, to the vibrancy, and the life of the church. We should expect to find that churches are concerned about holiness within the church because Christ is concerned about holiness within the church. Ephesians 5 teaches us about husbands and wives, yes. But Paul tells us that he's actually talking about something greater than just family life today. What he's talking about is how much love Christ has the church And gave himself up for her that he might wash her and cleanse her and present her to himself, a bride that is spotless and undefiled. And if that's the kind of love Christ has for the church, that he desires a holy church, then it behooves us to seek that same thing. Now, a word of caution before we proceed on further. You'll notice in the New Testament that there's many epistles. Those are letters written to other churches. Most of them are by Paul. And what we find is that the impetus or the catalyst for these um, epistles are oftentimes error within the church. Now the error within the church as he's writing to the churches, what you'll notice is that he doesn't call those believers apostates. The only church that he warns aggressively against apostasy is the Church of Galatia. And what they were doing is they were flirting with justification by works rather than faith. Salvation by works. A mixture of Judaism with Christianity. And he tells them, no, 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 that's a damnable heresy. If anyone else, if Paul himself or any angel preaches that, you should not listen to them. <clears throat> but then you come to a book like 1 Corinthians, and good night, it's a head-scratcher. Because there's all manner of sin going on there. Can you imagine being in that congregation and the hot mess that it was? <laughs> I mean, there's all kinds of things, right? There's believers suing one another and trying to rip one another off. There's idol worship and sexual sin that's taking place. There's theft and there's gossip and slander and all kinds of things that are taking place. And he offers very serious correction to the point where in 2 Corinthians he says, Man, I wish I was there so I could change my tone of voice because I think you need to hear something a little harsher that might come across with pen and paper here. But they're still Christians. That's what I mean by it's a head scratcher. (laughs) So when we come to this topic of church discipline, we need to be um, very cautious that we don't do what a lot of people have the tendency to do, and maybe we do, which is why it's good to warn us about this, is pendulum swing from one direction to the other. We don't want to be in the position where we're like, well, we don't want to do discipline at all because that's going to alienate people and... You know, it's going to hurt some families within the church, and so we just don't want to do that, which is the majority of churches I've been in before here, that's the way they functioned. And frankly, a lot of sin ran rampant, maybe behind the scenes or whatnot, but it was there and wasn't spoken of because nobody wanted to rock the boat kind of thing. Or we don't want to swing the other way, and all of a sudden we are these sin sniffers, and every tiny little sin that props up, anything that might be construed, we're all of a sudden all on each other all the time about everything. That does not create a climate of grace. That creates a climate of stress and anxiety. And then I walk in here and I want to make sure that every little thing is right. Look, I'm going I'm to sin, okay, guys? You guys are going to sin. And what we want to do when that kind of thing comes up is handle it rightly and biblically in the way it should be handled, quickly, with care, with compassion, knowing there go I but by the grace of God, but at the same time saying, hey, we, we are all Christians together. We all want to proceed and pursue holiness. And so when we come to this issue of church discipline, that's the attitude that we want to have in it. I'm not worried about a pendulum swinging one way or another, but it's certainly something We want to have in our minds, right? We want to be careful and cautious about. So first of all, verse 9, he tells us to avoid foolish, pardon me, controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Now, these are all things we've already looked at in the pastoral epistles. So I'm not going to spend a ton of time on these things foolish controversies are going to be those controversies that are specifically by, and really all of these are, by the Jewish heretics, the Judaizers that would come within the context of a Christian church that was established and try to say, oh, it's good that you guys are Christians and following Jesus, but now here's a little bit more that you need to do. Circumcision following the law, eating kosher, and all the like. So genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. We all can see, hopefully, that there are certain theological controversies that are just stupid to enter into and that, that, that are so unhelpful. All they're going to do is be divisive within the church. Do you want me to give you one right now, just as an example? Mike's nodding his head, so he wants to hear it. I, I, I will. I know it needs to be addressed. I know it's a timely matter, but it's critical race theory. I hate it. I, can't, I get so sick of listening to other people talk about it. But when one group says another group is therefore you know, whatever you label you want to tag onto them because they have the power over this other group, that's just nonsense. If one group says we can't commit a specific sin because we aren't A, B, or C, you know that that's a foolish controversy. It's a dissension. It's something that's going to breed nothing but strife and it can't be tolerated in the church and we need to avoid those things because they're unprofitable and worthless. If it's going to come up, probably, we are moving Forward in a day and age where that seems to be something that is more influential in people's thinking. People are thinking less and reacting more. And so whatever gives them a basis to portray themselves as a victim is something that a lot of people are glomming right onto in our day and age. We want to teach against that. We want to think against that. We want to make sure that we're thinking rightly in terms of the body of Christ, but we want to avoid these kind of things that just stir up division. Okay, now verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Where does Paul come up with this kind of stuff? Probably are familiar, it's in Matthew 18. So if you want to turn there, it would be good for us to look at the text that Jesus gives us that explains this whole church discipline process. Matthew chapter 18, and we will begin looking in verse 15. The whole chapter is great. Well, the whole Bible's great. But Uh, If you want homework tonight, you can go home and read Matthew chapter 18. But verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to even listen to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bound on earth Uh, Pardon me, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two two of you agree on anything uh, about what you ask, it will be done for them by our Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And we'll stop the context right there. Interesting, first of all, that he gives us, this list, and he tells us, first thing, that if your brother sins against you, now, most of the time, granted, this is going to be a personal offense of some kind, something that is done personally to you, and what you're to do is to go to that brother and tell it between you and them alone. So, me and Fred, all right, we, we work together, but I, I say something that that personally offends him. I don't know what that would particularly be, but let's just for argument's sake say, Fred gets offended about something that I do or that I say. His responsibility is to come to me just between me and him alone, not to call up Falcon and be like, you wouldn't believe what Pat did. He's supposed to be Pastor Pat. What a punk, you know, kind of thing. It might be right, but the first thing that he's supposed to do is come to me between me and him alone. Now, I personally think, even though it's not in the text here, that this text is bathed in prayer. I think there's an assumption that Fred would be praying about what he's doing, coming and talking to me, okay? So that's not there. It's just a bonus. I think that all of this is going to be bathed in much, much prayer. So Fred comes to me and he says, Pat, you did this. I now, after having heard Fred, might respond positively and go, You're right, dude. I was so wrong. Forgive me. That that was sin. Right? All done. All better. It's all over. Now I I've done that with I don't with with at this point, I don't think I've done it with everybody who's here in the church, but at one point, there's, there've been lots of times where that's happened, where either I've offended somebody or somebody's offended me and we've come to one another. And, you know, I, I, I try to cultivate a attitude of quick repentance that if I am genuine, yeah, that was wrong, man, I want to be the first one to own up to it. So let's say I wasn't though. And He says this to me and I'm like, shut up, dude, whatever. And I walk away, right? You could all see that. Well, hopefully not for me that happening, but you could see that that could be a response when somebody comes like this, right? You know, you get defensive, the walls go up and, you know. So Fred, you know, gives some time and says, okay, you know what, I'm just, I'm gonna pray about this and we're gonna see what happens. And, you know, maybe the Lord does a work down the road a few days, couple of weeks or something. And I come back to Fred and I go, you know what, I really blew it. In that moment, I got defensive. I was a little hurt, you know, and I shouldn't have been sorry. All good. But if times goes by and there's no repentance and it seems like there's only a hardening or a souring of the relationship, then Fred is called in scripture here to take two or three people with him. Now, he says, okay, I'm going to take Caleb. Mike comes to me. This is for the benefit of both parties involved, okay? It's to benefit me because he's the one who's come to me with a defense, and maybe Fred was wrong to begin with. Maybe in the very beginning, Fred was just, he got his feelings hurt. It really wasn't sin. And yeah, I could have said, hey, I'm sorry I hurt your feelings, dude, but it really wasn't sin, right? And they're able to say, yeah, I don't think Pat did that, Fred, and 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 calms everything down, and then everybody's like, okay, water under the bridge and moves on. But they're also here for Fred, because maybe he was right, and I legitimately was in sin, and now they're both able to hear both sides of the story and objectively say, because they want what's best for Scripture, they want what's best for the church, they're praying as well. They hear both sides, and now they're able to say, Pat, no, you were wrong. This is where Fred was right in this matter. And and we think he's right and, and we're calling you to repent. Maybe that little bit of pressure was all that I needed. Maybe the Spirit had let me wallow in that sin for a period of time. Remember the call the worship that I read, my bones wasted away. Maybe the Lord wanted my bones to waste away for a minute to reveal that sin that's actually within my heart. Maybe the Lord wanted me to see how desperately wicked I still really am. And when I have a a fence here that I'm willing to put a defense up and back off, and rather than submitting to the Lord and his holy work, I'm still, you know, very selfish on my own, right? Right? So this puts the pressure on me, and now maybe I repent, but maybe I don't. Again, they go away from the situation, they take some time, and they together now pray about it. Again, not spreading gossip around within the church or telling everybody what's going on, but the three of them getting together regularly and praying for me that I would come to repentance and that I would bow my knee before the Lord so that holiness in the church and unity would reign. So they allow maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe it's a few weeks, maybe it's a month or so, just to, maybe it's more than that. I don't know. But, but the time, I think, in that particular context, you'll know it. And it's probably wiser to let mercy go a tiny bit longer than you normally would want to go because you don't know what the Lord is doing. I think it's, it's something so egregious then maybe time needs to be shortened and it needs to be handled quicker. But again, I think the wisdom that we get from Scripture and the Spirit leading us in that particular matter will guide us into a right way to do this. So finally, I don't repent. Hardened. No way. So then they go and they tell it to the church. Now, this is not so that they can just let finally gossip i got to let it out and let everybody know, of course. What this is, is now the pressure of the entire congregation needs to be leveled against the sinning individual. This isn't a go and get them. This is a we are broken and we need we are grieving over this particular individual and we want to see them restored to fellowship, right? We want to see this situation, right? We want to see unity. Come back to the body and there to be joy within the church. Not this fissure, not this just divide that has taken place within the church. And so the church now is obligated to come. So instead of just Fred and Caleb and Mike, now everybody is overwhelming me with pleads of repentance Pleading, will you? Because if you continue to go down this road, it, you, you what are you going to do? You're going to be out of the church. And what does that say about your walk with the Lord? It doesn't say, well, <clears throat> you were just right and everybody else was completely wrong in this matter. No, you're the one who needs to turn and repent. And if he refuses to listen to the church, so I just completely reject everybody's prayers and pleading with me, to come and to repent. And again, this is probably now, if you think about it, months that have taken place. And the pain and just the anguish that has come within the church because of this one individual's just digging their heels in and refusing to repent. You can finally see why the end result is you have to remove them from the congregation. They just need to be, the fancy word is excommunicated. What we're doing is we're saying, as a Gentile or tax collector, isn't we're not putting some kind of um, pejorative moniker on them, or a Scarlet A, if you will, or something along those kind of lines. What we're saying is they are now an evangelistic prospect. What do I mean by that? We don't have any fruit of redemption. We see no positive fruit of salvation, right? Faith and repentance are the obvious marks of somebody who's genuinely been born again. And if we don't see one of those major fruits, repentance, being exhibited in the heart and the life of an individual, what does that say about the heart of the individual, We can't see the heart. All we can do is make determinations based upon their actions. And if their actions lead us to see that they aren't a Christian, we have to say that. Now, we at Sovereign Joy, we've only had to go through this entire process once. And I pray we never do it again. It was ugly. A family left because she came up after when we told the church. She's like, What are you going to do? Start looking at my life and kick me out when you find something you don't like? And there was no reasoning, unfortunately. But we did have to go through this process. There was one family where we were starting, to, where this was starting to happen, and they left, thankfully, because a horrible situation resulted down the road, just a few months, with that particular family. So it is something that we practice. I have had some people here and some people who not here who were part of our church and some people who have moved on from our church. All kinds of people come to me in repentance or come to me and say, Hey, dude, you sinned in this way. And I thankfully have been repentant and the Lord has granted me that repentance time and time again. And I pray that I continue to have that gifted to me by the Lord that I would repent. I remember one time, just recently, that there was, you know, you know, he wouldn't mind me saying this because it happened publicly. Y'all know Tim Boone, or most of you do, know Tim Boone. And there was one particular time where we were talking about songs, and I thought these particular songs from Bethel. I didn't think I categorically was like, I don't think you should sing any of them ever, anytime, any place, no matter what. And he thought, yeah, I don't know. I think you need to look at the words and who's singing them and all this. And that wasn't just Bethel. It was all kinds of things. I was just whitewashing all of the songs all the way across the board. And, you know, after a period of time, and I was praying about it, and it was a long time. It was several months. I said, you know what? I think in our conversation, I overstated what I really meant. Now I'm not saying they're all good. Don't mishear me saying now, like let's start singing those songs or anything like that. What I meant was, in the way I said it, in the way I came across, it, and and without me even considering, like I wouldn't, I didn't even listen to him. I just immediately was like, no, you're wrong, dude. And I had to repent. I told him, you know what? The way I handled that was all wrong, and I'm sorry. And this was upstairs after a church service and I went and we were taking communion and when I took communion, that came into my mind. I need to go make things right with Tim. So as soon as the service was over, I made a beeline for him and everyone was around and I told him that and we were both kind of shedding some tears and stuff. And he's like, you know what? I've been holding the grudge ever since. I've been hearing your sermons, but I've just been hating them and picking them apart and critiquing them. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. And we hugged and you know, we've been good ever since. So this is the way church discipline is supposed to happen. It's supposed to happen in the context of the congregation. It's supposed to happen with, with genuine repentance. We find an illustration in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 of a guy who's committing a horrible sin. And Paul is able to intervene and say, hey, you need to stop that. You need to make that guy quit, or you need to kick him out of the church. I've judged this matter. This matter needs to be taken care of with haste. And they did. They put him out. And then in 1 Corinthians, we have that glorious chapter passage where it tells us that once he's repented, he's to be brought back in within the congregation of the church. So... Just because a person has been put out for serious sin doesn't mean that they're outside of the realm of grace. We're not saying they've committed the unpardonable sin. We're not damning them to hell. We're saying that there is sin that needs to be repented of. Please repent. Even at that very end stage. And when there's repentance, we rejoice. And we bring them back into fellowship in the body. So, now we come to this verse 10 here in Titus chapter 3, if you want to flip back there. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, this implies that there's probably more of a public nature going on with this. It isn't just me and Fred have an issue. There's something publicly being done. And he is to be warned once and then twice and then to have nothing more to do with him. And again, I think that this is a long process. We would want to sit down with somebody and theologically talk through these issues and try to figure out, you know, what's going you know, where are they coming from and hopefully we could come to some kind of resolution. But if that takes place And in the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter has been established, right? That's what you're supposed to judge an elder by there in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We looked at that a few weeks ago. When we know that this person is not repenting, that that person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. Meaning that he is bringing condemnation upon himself because of his refusal to repent, If you have questions or thoughts about that, please feel free to let's talk about it afterwards or whatnot. Um, You might have never seen it done right. You might have seen it done right uh, several times and praise God for that. Um, Most of the time problems within the church aren't handled very well. Most of the time there's either a cover up or just a piling on from all kinds of people and crushing the person. And both of those extremes are wrong. Again, we don't want a pendulum swing one way or another. That's why we want to go slow and pray about these things, read what scripture says, have good conversations as best we can with people so that we don't end up with this kind of lopsided discipline that's taking place. We want to do it rightly and accurately in a way that's honoring the Lord and bringing glory to his name. Now it might be with an iron fist sometimes, especially a theological matter that's bringing division. One of the rascals that I was talking about earlier, he was starting to talk about sinless perfectionism, which is why me and Brian started talking to him and saying, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. That is not what we teach here. That is not what Scripture teaches. You No. Know. And he ended up leaving because of that. And... So that needed to be handled a little more quickly than I would a personal thing between people. So hopefully that's clear. It might not be because of emotions, I get that. But if it isn't clear, please you know ask me questions and, and let's talk through it. The rest of this is pretty self-explanatory. I meant to spend the bulk of the time here in verses nine and 10. So as we read through this, let me just give you a few little uh, uh, thoughts to maybe put a pin in if you want to think about them or study them more. Uh, send Artemis and Tychus to you. Do your best to come to me at Nicopolis for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help the cases of the urgent need and not be unfruitful. I pray that this is a lesson that we learn from the book of Titus. To devote ourselves to good works so that we can help out urgent needs within the body of the church with one another so as to not be unfruitful. Of course, we want to do altruistic good works out in the community, but to be perfectly honest, we're called to take care of our own first and foremost. And if there's needs and there's things within the context of the church, we ought to be able to see them, And we ought to be able to step out and take care of those with good works and not be unfruitful. The church should be a body that is healthy because we are helping one another out and growing together. All who are with me, send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Lord, we pray that grace would genuinely be with us. <clears throat> because Lord, um, if we're honest, this topic that we just looked at is is dicey and oftentimes complicated, and it's very easy to not do rightly. And so we ask for your grace to be our uh, guiding light, our guiding thought in the way that we minister to one another, the way that we fellowship with one another, and even the times when we rebuke one another, Lord, that we would have in our mind the idea that there go I, but by the grace of God, and that we want to see somebody who is struggling in sin just simply right with the Lord and right with the church. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a fruitful body, that we would be a body that's growing in Grace that's growing in mercy, but also that's growing in holiness as well, Lord. We love you and we thank you for these wonderful pastoral epistles that we've been in. And we pray, Lord, that as we close this chapter on these studies, that we would know you better now than we did when we began them, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.